The story you're about to hear was told to me in the strictest of confidence. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that confidence. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the people, places or events that appear in this story, ask you not to reveal any information publicly, out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. David Paul Nixon, and you're listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. Our lives are more fragile than we'd like to admit. Even the most cautious of us, the most careful, would become a shivering wreck at the thought of just how many different ways our lives could fall apart each and every day. About how an accident, a mistake, a badly worded message, or an unexpected meeting with our manager could send everything into a tailspin. And things are getting worse. It's an anxious time of price rises and high interest rates, and enormous utility bills. People can't afford the food they used to buy to heat their homes comfortably. They can't afford the rise in the cost of their rent, the rise in the cost of their mortgage. These slow-burn crises are matched with bigger oncoming threats, climate change, and the Pandora's box of AI which promises to cause everything from a job apocalypse to an actual apocalypse. It wasn't always like this. Do you remember when the future used to be an optimistic place? We used to take it for granted that, over time, things would broadly improve. Not that there would be no problems, obviously, but that the future would provide more security, more progress, better technology for building a better standard of living. Now the future is here, and we're still fighting over the last century's problems. Even conflicts we thought we'd put to bed, racism, homophobia, autocracy, have somehow grown in prominence again. How will we tackle the important challenges we know are coming, when we can't be sure we can keep a roof over our heads, put food on the table, or be allowed to vote, or to simply exist? I remember back when we were starting to move beyond the pandemic and I was feeling, all things considered, pretty optimistic. I was amongst the lucky I didn't really lose anything because of the pandemic. In fact, I met my current partner who I now share a home with just before the lockdown. Our relationship grew stronger through Zoom calls and later masked up sensibly distanced events. I felt so fortunate. I still do in most ways, but dark clouds are on the horizon. We are promised a new roaring twenties, a huge party when the pandemic was over. Instead, everything feels broken. Our society in a state of decay. We know that things can't go on this way, but 
It's all so tiring, so hopeless, so complicated and depressing. I wish I had something optimistic to say at this point, but this is a ghost stories podcast. It's about the things we fear, the things we cannot and do not want to face. And it's about how nothing lasts forever, and that everything good and bad, right or wrong, is finite. It all comes to an end, eventually. I won't offer any platitudes. What I have, as always, is a story, a two-part epic to end our third season. And if there's a message to be found at the end of this messy, traumatic and tragic series of events, it's that some of the things we value most that drive us and occupy our minds, maybe they just aren't worth it. That we get worked up and wear ourselves down for the most empty and foolish reasons and that we are so easily distracted from the things that really are important. Like the last episode, this case takes a little more time to build, but when it gets there, it gets explosive. Sometimes things have to get worse before they can get better. This is case number 390, and it's called Vandals, and you can hear part one in full after these messages. I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the podcast. We enjoyed a bit of a spike in listenership over the winter and start of spring, and it's likely that these reviews played a huge part in that. So I really do appreciate the support. It absolutely does make a difference. And if you haven't had chance yet and you are enjoying the show, please do rate it on the Spotify app by visiting the show page and hitting the three dot button, or by reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or on any other platform. It really helps me out, and I really do appreciate it. And now, back to the story. Just a heads up to say that the narrator of this story is female. The accident was only the beginning. I couldn't believe I'd done it, just driven straight off the road into a brick wall. It's just not the sort of thing that I'd do. I'd never normally have been so reckless. I'd been on the road for over 20 years and never even got a single point on my license. I'd never even had a speeding ticket. But just my luck, a police car was only a few hundred yards behind me and they saw the whole thing. I was sat frozen behind the wheel when they tapped on my windscreen. When I snapped out of my trance, they arrested me on a dangerous driving charge. My solicitor suggested I go and see a therapist, which wasn't really what I wanted, talking to some stranger and paying them for it. But I'm glad I agreed to do it. That and my impeccable driving record meant that the magistrate didn't go so hard on me. On the one hand, I got to keep my license, and thank God because I wouldn't have been able to get to work. I'd never have been able to live it down. But for putting people's lives at risk, Even though no one was actually hurt, I was given 40 hours of community service. So humiliating. Scrubbing graffiti off bridges and alleyways with benefit cheats and pub thugs and vandals. It was all my sister's fault. My damn sister. Life was stressful enough before she came along and upended everything. She'd split up from her latest boyfriend and needed somewhere to run to. 
and I swore I'd never let her do this to me again, but she had Liam to look after, and I couldn't let her make his life worse than it already was. She knows this and uses it to manipulate me, because that's what she does. She uses people. This arse she'd just split up from was checking her emails and text messages and wanted to know what she was doing all the time. It was basically stalking her. But then they had got together while she was going out with his best friend, so he'd plenty of reasons not to trust her. And that relationship she'd gotten into by cheating on Liam's father. I don't even know what she wants. It's like she's always looking for something better. She over-invests every time. She meets some guy, he makes a lot of promises, and she totally buys it, goes full in. But when it's not what it's cracked up to be, she gets bored and then moves on to someone else. She makes the same mistake over and over again. And let's be honest, she's a bit of a slut too. One drink and she's easier to pull than a Poundland Christmas cracker. My house isn't even that big. Only two up, two down. And suddenly I've got them moving into my study, sharing the room between them. Claire thought she was going to share my room with me. But I have to have some space to keep my sanity. It isn't as if she can organise herself. Never mind a seven-year-old. Liam wasn't a bad kid, but he knew he couldn't rely on her. He's a mix of needy and sulky. Sometimes he was just withdrawn. His mum was happy to sit him down in front of the TV and leave him with his tablet. She's all for digital parenting. I ended up having to look after them both. I couldn't help it. I couldn't keep my life on track without keeping them on track too. Otherwise they'd wreck everything. I was making sure Claire got him to school in the morning and picked him up at the right time and was paying the childminder. I was washing uniforms and helping him with his homework. I was going on at them both to tidy their things up all the time. All I got was aggravation for it, of course. No thanks from either of them. She was regressing too. Going out late and getting drunk. She was temping and all her work friends were just out of uni or in their early twenties. She was acting like she's still a teenager and up for anything. Finding excuses to dump Liam on me or his father. It was driving me crazy. And I had so many other things on my mind. A few years before, I joined a startup as their new head of HR. It was a risky move, but a good opportunity for me because it was my chance to run my own team, not only allowing me to demonstrate greater managerial skills, but also to innovate because I wouldn't have to be bogged down by any legacy systems. I'd been there for over two years, and a lot of that time had been very positive. I'd brought stability to their organisational hierarchy in what was already a rapidly changing environment. It was tough, but I handled it and had a really good team to work with, at least for a while. Things started to go downhill when one of my team came back from maternity, but couldn't do full time. I'd been using a temp who was really good, but she didn't want to go part-time and job share with Ling. And the company wouldn't pay to keep her full-time. The solution I got stuck with was the finance director's niece, Georgia. I could have her full-time. But what was the use of that when she had no experience and no qualifications, and no brains either? That left my team with a weak link when the news came down that we were going to have to lay people off. 
the pattern with small businesses is that they ride a wave of fast growth, but they inevitably hit a plateau when they reach the limits of their original business model. Expansion becomes slower, but the need to pay debts and make good returns doesn't go away. Suddenly the fast and loose early days end and everyone is on a budget and everything's got to be lean and mean. I'd done redundancies before, but this was the first time I'd organised the whole thing. And this was a new company. The owners never thought they'd have to do something like this. So they're twiddling their thumbs and stalling and hiding in the bathroom. Someone had to take control. For better or worse, that was me. We ended up losing a lot of people who were with the business a long time. It was a really bad couple of weeks. Lots of anger, lots of frustration. The atmosphere when you came into the office was just terrible. I was the axe woman. The leadership were burying their heads in the sand. I had to badger them to make decisions to send out comms to reassure people. I had to lecture that idiot Georgia on confidentiality when she started tweeting about people crying in the office. I wouldn't have chosen some of the people who left, but it it wasn't my call. I'd been friends with some of them, but that was pretty much over. Throughout all of this, my sister was acting out, doing what she likes, coming and going, dropping Liam with me, his father, her friends. She was making excuses that her ex never used to let her out, so now she was letting her hair down. But she wasn't awake to take Liam to school some day. She didn't have his lunch ready, and she was leaving me to help him with his homework. I was getting to the end of my tether with her. She couldn't even tidy up after herself. It was bad enough not being able to walk from one end of the house to the other without stepping on Lego, but when a grown-up woman can't even take care to hang her own clothes up and just leaves them lying around the place, she's not supposed to be the child. Then came the night of the accident. We ended the last of the consultations. The list of redundancies and the terms were all finalised. It had been very challenging, and yet our boss had not said anything to me or my team about the work we'd put in. So I thanked them myself, and then I drove home tired and angry. All I wanted to do was just go home and drink myself into a coma. I get there, and I find all the lights are on, the heating is on, the TV is on, the windows are wide open, and nobody is home. I was furious. Do you ever get those moments in life when you look at what's happening to you and think, how the hell did I get here? This isn't what I wanted. I didn't ask for this. Working all day to come home to this. This total lack of fucking respect. She was living on my dime and she couldn't even turn off the television. I gave her such a talking to when she and Liam got home. I was taking out some of my work anger on her, but I just didn't care anymore. At least I get to say what I think when I'm at home. That's all it's about for you, isn't it? She said to me. Money, money, money. I look after my money. That's how I can afford this house. That's why you have somewhere to live right now. She never takes responsibility for anything. Yes, you're so perfect and you do everything right all the time. Excuse me for not worrying too much about your precious pennies while I try to get my son to school 
when my whole life has been turned upside down. Your life's upside down. You don't know what it's like to want something real in your life. You might be happy to live here and work all day and have nothing else going on. But some of us, we just want to live a little while we can. Live a little. You're a parent. You've got a child to look after. You can't be going out all night and getting hammered. What do you know about parenting? You don't even have any kids. I'm doing all the parenting. You know what your problem is. It's all just about work. That's why you're so damn bitter. You never get out. You never let your hair down. You're not even human. You're like a robot. You're so hateful and depressing. You don't know anything about what's going on in my life. She was bringing on the tears and I was about to lose it. But then Liam wandered in and asked for his tablet charger. He's that used to his mum rowing with people. He feels fine wandering in like this is normal. I don't know, sweetie, have you looked in your bedroom? I let you borrow it, remember? He sulked. Claire might be happy to row in front of Liam, but I couldn't do it. Suddenly the whole flat was being turned over in the search for this stupid cable. And I'd only just tidied up. I had to get out. I couldn't stand to be with them. There was no place at home where they couldn't get to me. So I picked up my car keys and slammed the door behind me. She drove me out of my own home. She always wrecks everything. I had to be the responsible one. And she has a go at me for not having a life. If I wasn't there, where would she be? In some bedsit on the street, handing Liam over to social services, giving blowjobs on street corners, £60 for a suck. She always knows how to get under my skin. I was doing everything right. Saving money, being smart, putting my life together. But I was wound so tight. What good was owning a house if you can't breathe? If you've no one good to share it with? My mind was full of rage. I was thinking of all the things I was going to say when I got home. How I was going to tell her she had just one month to get the hell out. That I was going to charge her rent, make her share the bills, drink all her wine from the fridge. And then I drove into a wall. I was so wrapped up in everything, all this stupid shit. I plain forgot where I was and what I was doing. It was like I short-circuited. I could have killed myself or someone else. And for what? That stupid cow. It was humiliating. Turning up outside some old council outbuilding on a Sunday morning at 8am to do my time. We were the vandalism squad. We were going to remove graffiti and pick litter and make scrubby places look less dirty and disgusting. The people I was there with. They were a mixture of the living dead and the living with parasites. We were all issued with a dirty reflective vest. I tried not to look any of them in the eye, although I'm sure they were all wondering what on earth someone like me was doing there. The supervisor was this overweight man who looked like putty. He couldn't walk and talk at the same time without having to catch his breath. Once he checked us all in, he drove us out in a council minibus and put us to work. We were cleaning up this nest of subways around a roundabout for the first day. I wore a hoodie I borrowed from my sister to cover my face in case anyone I knew saw me. It was cold and wet and the cleaning solvents made me queasy. 
Some of the walls were covered top to bottom with graffiti. I don't know how anyone has the time to do it. Sometimes it would just come off. Sometimes it was so bad you just had to paint over it with paint that was supposed to be graffiti proof. There was evidence it didn't work in many, many locations. But I had to get through it. Five sessions over five weekends. It was just best to get it done and get it out of the way. I kept all this secret from work. I didn't want anyone to know I was doing this. And no one knew about the crash or the therapy. They were starting to hate me there now. After a second round of layoffs, getting a meeting invite with me was like getting the results back from an STI test. At best, you dodged a bullet, but you knew you were probably in trouble. Knowing I was standing in the cold, cleaning the streets on my weekends, would have made a lot of people happy. I was tense all the time now. That therapist I saw... He told me I should speak to my doctor about anxiety meds, but I didn't want to start taking a bunch of pills. I had enough to worry about already. They thought I was too controlling. If I wasn't in control, everything in my life would fall apart. I stopped going after the court ruling. The cast of petty criminals would be different each week. A mix of holdovers and new cast members. The characters for the first week were all fairly old, mostly middle-aged. But the second week we had some kids join us. There'd only been one other woman in the squad the first time I'd showed up. She looked so emaciated she could barely hold up her sponge once it was wetted. She was gone by the second week, replaced with a woman about my age. She was the talkative type. She was talking to some of the dregs about what the whole procedure was and I tried not to look in her direction. I didn't really want to talk to some gobby northerner. But after signing in with the supervisor, she walked right up to me and said, God, do you think we could sue the council for poisoning us with fumes? That man smells like a dead pig covered in horse shit. I couldn't help it. I burst out laughing. She didn't even say it quietly. The guy was only a few feet away. You can't say that, I said trying to get her to be quiet. Why not? Everyone's thinking it. You can get deodorant for less than a quid. All he has to do is pop into Tesco and not head straight for the pasties. Fat kid. Billy's one of those people who honestly doesn't care who you are or where you come from. She has no sense of norms or rules or protocols. How does this work then? Once everyone's signed in, we get bussed out to today's site somewhere that needs cleaning up. We've all got to crowd into that bus. Give me a gas mask. I don't think I'm going to survive it. And this was the beginning of one of the most unexpected relationships of my whole life. The thing with Billy is that she says whatever comes into her head at any given moment, and she doesn't really ever stop talking. And you can resist, sure, you can try to ignore her, but she carries on anyway. You just kind of get pulled in. How'd you end up here? You don't look like any of these characters. Do you get caught drunk driving or something? No, I don't really drink. What was it then? It was like being harassed into conversation. And because of the suddenness of it, her brazen upfrontness, I honestly couldn't think of a lie or a story. It was like being forced into a confession. I just straight up told her something I'd been keeping secret from everyone else. And though at first I resisted, 
I soon felt rather liberated. Whatever you said to her, it just kind of rolled off her back. It wasn't like talking to the therapist who was going to pull apart and judge what I was saying. Billy just heard me and that's all. She could be blunt, really blunt, but it was never vindictive. In fact, it kind of put you on the back foot. She would question you and there was kind of nowhere to hide. If you gave her bullshit, it was simply exposed. Can you not just chuck her out? When my boyfriend wouldn't leave, I just put his stuff outside and said, you'd better come over and get it now, looks like it's going to rain this afternoon. I'd love to, but of course there's Liam. You don't have to look after him. That's her job. She can't have you doing it for her. She's taking the piss. Not paying rent and working. What's she doing with her money? She says she's saving it. She has calmed down a bit. She's not going out as much as she was. Still buys plenty of clothes, though. Well, yeah, she can if she's staying for free. I got her to split some of the bills, at least. That took a lot of asking. You shouldn't even be asking. She gets so defensive when you go at her. She makes it really hard to just ask her about anything. I was making excuses for myself, of course. Why is it so difficult with families? I don't have this trouble at work. Conflict resolution was supposed to be part of my job. Billy invited me for lunch at McDonald's. It wasn't the sort of place where I'd normally eat, but I found myself just going along with it. Once we'd sat down, I discovered it wasn't just that she was nosy about other people's lives. She could talk plenty about her own, too. She had no filter. She was a single mother as well. She'd left the boy's father because he became an alcoholic who went on to become abusive. And she was the fighting back kind. She'd left her most recent boyfriend six months ago. He was spending all day sitting on his arse, happy to let me do all the work. She just qualified to be a plumber. Before that, she'd been the manager at a couple of chain restaurants, but one had closed and the other had sacked her for getting angry with customers. She decided to change careers because she didn't want to feel like punching people in the face the whole time. The crime that ended up with her landing in the clean-up squad was still claiming benefits while starting a plumbing job. She thought she was allowed to do that because her income wasn't steady yet but the court didn't see it that way. And I got the feeling she probably knew that it was dodgy. She thought her ex-partner had reported her to get revenge. She got her own back by pouring wood glue into the petrol tank of his car. There were some pretty noticeable parallels between her and my sister. In their own ways, both seemed pretty impulsive and not good at thinking things through. But Billy at least dealt with her problems herself. Claire just let everything snowball and made her problems everyone else's problems. We weren't much alike, but I would have taken Billy over Claire for a sister any day. I'd have gladly had Billy help me pour wood glue into the tank of my boss's BMW. After a cinnamon slice each, we went back to our duties. It was a miserable day every time we did the clean-up. I was visiting parts of town I'd never even seen before. Places I wouldn't want to walk home alone through. Some of the graffiti was pretty impressive, even though it was pretty ugly. It must have taken hours to do. I remember thinking it was a shame that people with this kind of talent couldn't find something better to do with it. Kids would walk past and stare at us. 
It was probably just the usual malevolence she'd give to people who worked for the council. But it was uncomfortable. For all I knew, we were the ones destroying their work. At the end of the shift, I said goodbye to Billy. She confirmed she'd be back next week, and I was happy to hear it. She was heading off to visit a customer whose boiler she'd fixed, but who had yet to pay her. I would not want to swap places with that man. Liam normally spent Saturday with his father. On commencing community service, this had suddenly switched to Sunday. I could only imagine this was so that Claire could make sure she wasn't home when I got back. It was one of her smarter moves. All I wanted to do was sit in a bath and soak away the cold and the smell and the dirt. Try my best to relax so I'd be fresh for work tomorrow. And as we didn't have an events team, it's my gang that gets to organise the company's annual conference. There'd been some talk about whether to even have it because of the layoffs. They decided they needed to get the team together for morale. What there was of it. And to build confidence for the next financial year. It was a refreshing change from the layoffs, but it was more pressure. And I was pretty sure Ali, my only capable full-timer, was looking for another job. Her leaving would really screw things up. Ling was great, but only there for three days. The idea of being stuck alone with only Georgia to help for two days a week was... chilling. I couldn't even get her to put her phone down for five minutes. You know, looking back, it seems so silly that I was getting worked up about such petty shit. I really had no idea how bad things would get. I had no idea of the things I'd end up doing. I might have been losing my Sundays to the community, but secretly I was enjoying the time I was spending with Billy. It was cathartic. I could say whatever I liked and it didn't matter. And she would always listen. I could rant about Claire and work and she'd just listen. She was too good at spotting the bullshit though. I'd be complaining about something and she'd say, Why don't you do this? And why didn't you say that? And I didn't really have any answer why. It was the third week of us meeting, my second to last session in the squad, and we'd started to talk about the graffiti. By now we were recognising some of the tags and designs that were appearing in many different locations. We wondered whether kids were marking their territory, or just practising randomly wherever there was room, and they thought they wouldn't be seen. Do you think if they do it in pink it means they're gay? Billy asked. The pink Bosco tag came up a few times. The design was very 90s fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I don't know if local gangs are much into LGBTQ representation. Billy doesn't really know when you're joking. At my kids' school, the kids still call each other gay to be nasty to each other. When the teacher's here, they get right on the phone to warn you that your child might be a homophobe. But I said to them, he's six. He doesn't know homophobia from a hippopotamus. Some of the graffiti was enormous. They had to be spending hours on it, and the places they painted it, we couldn't even paint over it without an extension pole. It was amazing how they got it up there. I couldn't imagine them carrying a stepladder with them. And why go to all the trouble? Why do it in a subway or under a bridge? I guess because it was hidden and easier to do without being caught. But if you wanted to paint or draw, why would you do it here? Why not 
Join an art club or something. Some of the tags were unreadable. Some used a kind of eastern-tinged italic that was hard to follow. Some used letters that were so big and bloated you couldn't actually make them out anymore. We couldn't even see the point of that. Billy's favourite one said Gabe, with wings drawn on the G and B and a halo sketched on the top. My favourite was Kingly, which is written in fat blue letters, all curling around each other like they were fighting for space. But the spray paint used for that one turned out to be really tough to scrub off, so I fell out of love with it pretty quickly. Neither of us paid much attention to the smudge tag. It wasn't big or showy, but it came up quite a lot. It was only black letters, piercingly straight and not very flashy. It started big and got smaller to the end. It was either getting louder like the words coming out of a megaphone, or getting quieter as if it was trailing off at the end. The alleys we were scrubbing that day were part of a network of paths that ran around a junction of dual carriageways and roundabouts, connecting them with the roads and pavements that ran beneath. We were on a descending path that joined a footbridge to the street below. We were washing down a thick concrete wall that propped up the road. Behind was a chain-link fence separating us from what was presumably the car park of a local business. At some point while I was cleaning, I noticed someone watching us. A kid was stood in the car park giving us the eye. I might not have cared much about it, but he stood watching us for a really long time. And who knows how long he'd been there before I noticed him. He was wearing tracksuit bottoms with a cheap leather jacket and a hoodie underneath. I try not to look directly at him. He looked pretty young, but also pretty mean. I wondered if we were destroying his work. Billy was busy talking about the kids' shows she used to watch and how all the shows her boy watched today were weird. I mentioned the staring kid to her, so she started to wave at him and shout hello. The supervisor didn't like us interacting with the public, and he told us to cut it out. If the kid saw her, he didn't seem to do anything. He disappeared shortly afterwards. We didn't actually see him leave. We finished at four. Billy offered to buy me a drink with the money she'd bullied out of her unpaying client by showing up at his house every day. I said no, but regretted it when I found Claire at home when I returned. She was drinking wine in the afternoon and scrolling Facebook on a phone with the TV on. I asked in as casual way as possible why she was home early. Apparently Paul, Liam's father, had an early shift so he needed to get to sleep early. Liam told a different story. He was hiding where he knew I'd find him. He was upstairs, tucked down the side of my bed with his head buried in his tablet. He said that we were supposed to go on a ride, but Dad didn't want to because it was raining. We were going to play Fortnite instead, but him and Mum were fighting. I played myself, then we came back. There was a time when Liam loved sports and playing outside. But since he'd stopped living with his dad, he was more and more on his tablet or on one of his consoles. I interrogated him gently. What were they arguing about? She wanted him to pay more money or something. Did she say what for? She said it was to buy me things, but she never buys me anything. I didn't want to push. 
poor thing was stuck in the middle of enough rows. But if Claire was pushing Paul for money, what did it mean? Perhaps she really was trying to get out and find somewhere else to live, or she'd spent too much on something stupid. I wondered if there was a way I could ask her that wouldn't end with us having a fight. The weather will be nice soon, you'll be able to go out. He ignored me and kept staring at his screen. Did you do your homework yet? He still didn't answer. Liam, did you do your homework? I'm doing it after dinner. Make sure you do. I need you to go to your room now. Auntie Abby has to change. It's not my room, it's her room. Well, I've got to get out of these clothes. He stamped his feet to the door. I knew how he felt. There was no good place to be when Claire was about. I closed the door behind him and got ready for my bath. Later I cooked myself something decent to eat and eavesdropped on him and Claire doing his homework to make sure it went okay. That night as I was getting ready for bed, I went to draw the curtains and I thought I saw someone down in the street staring up at me. I jumped back a little at first, but when I looked closer, whoever it was had started walking away from the house. I thought I'd just been mistaken and just caught the eye of someone who just happened to be walking past. The next morning there was all the usual chaos. I always got up before those two so I wouldn't have to fight for the bathroom. I left the house while Claire was still trying to get Liam to finish his breakfast. I went to my car. I went to open the door. I saw there was graffiti on the front of my house. Under my living room bay window, someone had sprayed smudge. The same tag I'd scrubbed away maybe a dozen times on my Sundays. I was creeped out. More than that, I was disturbed. This couldn't be a coincidence, could it? I lived in a pretty decent neighbourhood, not one of the rougher parts of the city, miles away from the streets I was cleaning. Kids just didn't go around writing on people's houses. This wasn't an anonymous war. This was a targeted personal attack. The fact that it was this graffiti that I'd been cleaning off walls only the day before suggested it was vindictive. This was a threat, an act of intimidation, and someone had followed me all the way home to do it. Claire breezed out of the house without noticing the tag, not until she saw me and followed my eyeline. Why'd someone do a thing like that? I don't know. That's so weird, she said, before bundling Liam in her car and leaving me to deal with it. As I drove to work, I wondered whether to call the police or not. It was an act of vandalism. Someone had broken the law. But would they care? I couldn't imagine they'd investigate it. What was there there to investigate, unless they knew who the vandal was? It being a vindictive act, though, did point to revenge. Maybe that was worth reporting in case it escalated. I started to think about the kid who spent all that time watching us. Then I realised I hadn't walked home from the site that day. There was no way he could have followed me home, not on foot. He looked a bit young for a driver. It was hard to pay attention at work and talk seating plans. Because no one knew about my community service, I couldn't say anything about what had happened. But while Ling was talking invitations, 
I remembered the figure I'd seen before I went to bed. I hadn't seen them with any spray cans, but they could well have been the perpetrator. Whoever this was, somehow they knew where I lived, and it made me very uncomfortable, more than a little afraid. I decided to clean the graffiti away that night. I'd do it straight away to show I wasn't intimidated and that it was no big deal. But it took forever. Nothing I used was as good as the toxic cleaning fluids from the council. Liam watched me and asked me what smudge meant. When I couldn't tell him, he spent ten minutes running around the garden, turning the sound into a kind of song complete with beatboxing. I had a gut feeling that wasn't going to be the end of it. I kept peering out of my bedroom window that night and the nights that followed. Liam promised to be on watch too, even though he had to be in bed before nine. It happened again on Thursday. I went out in the morning and Smudge had returned. And it had grown. It was written across the whole window now, impossible to miss. It was bigger and louder, a very clear escalation. It made me shiver. Someone was playing games with me, and they were letting me know this wasn't over. Even Claire was concerned. Why would someone do this? Raise the stakes, and for what reason? I did call the police this time. I took photographs and spoke to a policewoman the following afternoon. I told her about the kid I saw, but she didn't seem very convinced by it. And I couldn't easily describe what the kid looked like beyond his clothes. She basically admitted there wasn't anything they could do about it, unless someone was caught in the act. She said to call back if it happened again. I cleaned it off on Saturday. It took up most of the afternoon. My neighbours were shooting me suspicious looks as they went by, as if to ask, what have you been getting mixed up with? That Sunday at least was something to look forward to, my last day of community service. For a refreshing change, there was no rain and the sun came out. We were cleaning up the paths and alleys around an estate of brutalist council tower blocks. It was a really rough neighbourhood. I had told Billy about the graffiti at my house. I tried to keep the story quiet so as not to bother any of the zombies, but quiet is just not a Billy thing. What, do you think someone followed you? How else would they know where I lived? But we're just doing our jobs. We have to be here and do this. Do you think they know what community service is? Pretty sure they'd know. Whoever they are, they're taking it pretty personally. She noticed me looking around. You think they're still watching you? I don't know. Can you set up a camera? You could catch them doing it. Even better, they've got these new ones that connect up to your phone. You get a notification if someone's about. It's probably not going to happen again and I don't want to go spending money on cameras. It'd go off every time a fox went by. But if someone's following you about, what if this sick fuck has got other things on his mind? Who's going to look after you if he shows up with more than just his spray paint? I'm sure it's nothing like that, I said. And when I said it, I knew I wasn't sure. And now Billy had put a whole new set of terrifying ideas in my head. I'm just saying, you got to protect yourself. I have a cricket bat by my front door. You never know who's about. My ex is bad enough. We found a new smudge around the next corner. 
Billy saw me hesitate and stepped in front of me to take care of it for me, without saying a word. When the day was over, I was trying to talk myself into asking for her number, so we could maybe meet up again. But, I don't know, for some reason it was kind of hard to do. And thinking about it, I just couldn't think how it would work out. I couldn't really think how we'd be friends, what we'd do, or how we'd meet up. We weren't really that alike. We probably wouldn't like doing the same things. I bottled it in the end. And she was just so casual, she just went by and said, You look after yourself, yeah? It's been nice knowing you. And off she went. That left me feeling pretty depressed, actually, her going off so casually. I felt deflated. Those few weeks had meant something to me. Obviously more to me than to her. Some people are lucky. They can just bounce from one thing to another and not let it bother them. I was so jealous of her. When I got back to my car, I felt a sudden feeling of trepidation. I took a long look around. There was no one else in the car park. Everything was quiet, save the sound of the road. As I pulled out of the car park, I was careful to check my rearview mirror for any vehicle that might pull out and come after me. I could see no sign of me being followed, but then again, they already knew where I lived. I was so relieved to find there was no graffiti on my house. But this was the one time I wouldn't have minded some company when I got home. The whole place felt so empty. Maybe the camera would be a good idea. Or just a security light. An empty house can be so noisy when you're on your own. I was glad when those two got back. Even if they were squabbling about some school trip Liam wanted to go on. But Claire wasn't sure she could afford. I lent her the twenty quid to shut them both up. I slept uneasily. I woke up several times and kept checking the window to make sure no one was hanging around outside. I myself already missing Billy. I was tired and miserable when I awoke, but I was grateful that there was no new graffiti. That day I was visiting the local Marriott Hotel where we'd decided to hold the company conference. We'd held it there for the past two years, but it had been an open question as to whether we'd do it there again. The reason we'd held it there before is because the events manager was married to one of our senior developers, so she'd arranged a good package. But he'd been let go, so that made things a bit awkward. One of her managers, however, was keen not to lose the business. They'd offered us a deal on the smaller conference room and had us working with a different member of their team. Me and Ling went to meet with them to talk facilities and see the event space, but all we really wanted to do was get our hands on the taster menu. We were sitting in the restaurant enjoying buffet food and complaining about Georgia when I I noticed the same kid as before was outside and watching us. He was standing on the hotel terrace. This space wasn't open to the general public. You couldn't just wander in there. This scruffy kid who was glaring at me. He couldn't just have spotted me by chance. This couldn't be a coincidence. He'd somehow followed me all the way here, from my home. He looked so young close up. The whites of his eyes were so bright I could feel his gaze on me. He was so still it was freakish. Ling saw that there was something wrong with me. I couldn't eat with him watching. I was terrified. Worse, I was sure Ling couldn't see him. 
She must have seen me looking at him. He was the only person outside, but Ling didn't seem to notice a thing. She would have said something, she would have to. I knew now that this was really something beyond normal. I didn't want to risk saying something to Ling in case I'd gone insane. I hoped she would just see him. I was silently praying to God she'd just mention him and look in his direction. But the longer she talked without seeing him, the more I was convinced that she couldn't. I didn't want her to know that I was losing it. I tried to keep the conversation on business and lied when she asked if I was okay. I ate quickly and went to the toilet where I stayed for nearly ten minutes, afraid to go back out into the restaurant. When I returned, I kept my back to the window. I told Ling I thought I'd eaten something I was allergic to. I wasn't sure, but I wanted to go to my car to get some allergy tablets. She said she'd wrap up the rest of the business, and I left quickly, not looking to see if I was followed. There was no sign of the kid as I walked back to my car, but he'd already been there. From the other side of the car park, I could see his tag scrawled across the passenger side door. Smudge. What did it even mean? I looked around the car park for him. All I saw were other people wondering why I was looking at them. I drove home very slowly. Cars were beeping their horns at me. But the last time I was this stressed, I wasn't going to take any chances. The house was empty when I got home. Claire and Liam wouldn't be back for hours. I didn't know what to do with myself. I wanted to clean the paint off my car so no one would see it. But I didn't want to go outside either. It didn't feel safe. Unless it was all in my head. And I was going mad. I didn't have time to be mad. The timing couldn't have been worse. I went up to my bedroom, in the place where I could see the furthest up the street. I sat on the end of my bed and looked out the window. I was there for a long time, more than a couple of hours. Somehow I knew he would turn up. And he did. It was starting to go dark. I watched him walk slowly down the street, hands in his pockets, and up to my driveway. There was a touch of swagger to him now. He stopped and lifted his head to look up to my window. He froze. Maybe he couldn't see me, but I could see him. And I sat and I watched him and he watched me. I don't know how long we stared at each other. I was expecting something to happen and it didn't. I wondered whether to say something, whether I should shout out of the window at him or even go to him outside. I felt strangely fixed to the spot, entranced. I was already under his spell. It was only broken when Claire got home. I saw her car pull into the driveway, passing the kid and missing him by inches. The fact she hadn't seen him didn't, it didn't surprise me at all anymore. I knew he was only visible to me. And I confirmed this when Claire came into the room to see me. She asked if I was all right, and I asked her what she could see out of the window. She said, Just your car? You don't see anyone standing there? She said she couldn't. I was weirding her out. Liam came in, asking if she knew where his football boots were. She went to help him, closing the door behind her, saying, Auntie Abby just needs some time to herself. 
I sat there and kept staring at him. Eventually I must have fallen out of the trance and sunk into sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night. I was lying on my bed and was staring at the ceiling, still fully dressed. When I pushed myself up and walked to the window, I saw he was gone. I wondered what time it was and how long we'd been staring at each other. I was strangely calm, but there was, somewhere in the back of my head, a voice that was telling me all was not well. An alarm going off, but it wouldn't break through. It slipped from my attention as I wandered around in my days, trying to think where I was and what I was supposed to be doing. I could get undressed, get into bed, try to get some sleep, but none of that seemed very important. I became aware of a knocking. It got a little louder as I listened to it. I felt no need to react or do anything about it until it became distinct, too loud to ignore. I stepped out into the hall, trying to follow its source. My first thought was that Liam was messing around because he couldn't get to sleep. I tapped gently on their bedroom door and whispered his name. There was no answer. I heard the knocking again. It was getting louder. It was clearly coming from downstairs. I walked slowly down the stairs. By the time I got to the last few steps, I could see down the halls of the front door. I could make out a figure behind the glass. A dark shadow. It knocked on the door and started to laugh. It was a deep, throaty laugh. Cruel and hateful. I felt myself panic. Snapping out of my trance, I ran back upstairs and into my bedroom. Someone closed the door behind me. I spun around and he was there. The kid reached out, grabbed me by my hair and pulled me to him. Before I could scream, he raised a knife and he plunged it into my shoulder. I threw myself out of bed and ran across the landing to the bathroom. After being sick in the toilet, I fall back onto the floor. I sit with my back against the door. I take deep breaths. I'm still shaking uncontrollably. I feel sweat gathering on my forehead and all over my body. I was in my bedclothes at some point the night before. I must have put myself to bed, but I just couldn't remember when. The vomit left an acid taste in my mouth. I got back on my feet and went to drink from the tap. After rinsing out my mouth and washing the sweat off my face, I looked at myself in the mirror. I was colourless and clammy. The trembling had started to fade, but hidden behind all the shaking was a terrible throbbing pain in my shoulder. I thought of the dream and the knife. I moved my hand slowly under the strap of my top and I pulled it down over my arm. I hadn't been stabbed. There was no blood or a wound. There was a tattoo. Smudge marked on my flesh in clear black ink a few inches across, written exactly as the graffiti was written. I tried to wash it off. I tried soap and then shower gel, and then I went at it with the scourer I keep under the sink. It wouldn't come off. I scrubbed the skin raw. It wouldn't come off. I was marked. Permanently marked. I heard Liam knocking, asking for the toilet. I covered the tattoo, opened the door, 
and ran straight past him into my room. Couldn't handle it. I didn't know what was happening. Had I been dreaming? Had I been attacked? What was this thing on me? What was it for? What did it mean? The thought of it made my skin crawl. I started crying, weeping head down into my duvet. After a few minutes of uncontrollable tears, one of my alarms went off. I was going to be late for work. I didn't know what I was going to do about this tattoo and my nightmares. But I did know I had to get to work. I didn't have time for all this. I got myself in gear. I got myself dressed. I had tons to do at the office. I didn't need all that piling up on me as well. I didn't need to make things worse. I skipped breakfast and managed to get out of the house without seeing and speaking to Liam or Claire. I drove to the office with my whole body feeling like... I don't know, like it was jelly. It was as if I was the inside of a lava lamp. I felt these strange shifts and changes in my body and this burning, manic energy. Sitting still for the duration of the drive was astonishingly hard. I had to park the car far from the office. It still had the graffiti on the side, but the walk seemed to take no time at all. I had such energy. The whole world around me passed by like a blur. I barely heard people as I walked through the office. Only just about heard Ling when she started talking to me as I swooped past her. I told her to do what she thought was best. I couldn't think straight. It was like being drunk, except that I could see straight, walk straight. But everything else inside me was spinning around and turning upside down. Trying to work like this was ridiculous. The words on my screen all blurred together. They seemed to shift like the surface of water. Trying to think about anything made me feel like my mind was sloshing around in my head. Kept standing up and making myself sit back down again. I thought I should call a doctor. But what would I tell them? I checked to see if the tattoo was still there. It was bold, black and clear. What kind of stupid word was smush anyway? I didn't dare leave my office. I cancelled all my meetings. I stayed there for hours trying and failing to do any work. I decided I'd better go home sick. But then there was a knock at the door. I sat as straight and calm in my chair as I could as Ling came in. I tried to focus on her face so I wouldn't be distracted. I could tell from her posture though that something was wrong. It triggered an alarm bell in me. My attention was suddenly razor sharp and focused. Abby, something really bad has happened. I found it hard to speak. I managed to say, well, what? I don't know how she did it or why she did it. But I asked Georgia to send the seating plan over to the hotel. Okay, I said, but goodness knows why. She sent them the employee costs spreadsheet instead by mistake. She sent everyone's salary details to John Robbie's wife. Do you remember me saying that the partner of her old senior developer worked at the Marriott? Georgia had sent highly confidential information, not just to someone outside the business, but to someone who had every reason to hate us and to want to damage us. This was a total disaster, and one of my team was responsible. Have you ever heard someone say 
the actor without thinking. I was out of my chair and out of my office without thinking. If a wall had been in my way, I'd have gone straight through it. Georgia saw me marching towards her. She apologised to me quickly, making a big show of looking upset. She fluttered her eyelashes, and it didn't work. Even if I hadn't seen her hide her phone the second she saw me, I wasn't capable of listening. I swung my arm, and I wiped everything off her desk, and I said... What I said was... What the Jesus fuck is wrong with you? You fucking dimwit idiot. You are the stupidest human moron who has ever whore-born. I thought no one could be as dumb as you look, but Jesus Christ, you are a once-in-a-lifetime imbecile. You sloppy, slack-jawed, gormless, worthless, useless, brainless fucking cunt. I had no control, no restraint, and no barriers. I continued, what kind of retard passes out confidential information like she passes out hand jobs? What the fuck is wrong with you? Ling had to restrain me. She thought I was going to hit Georgia. The whole office watched us aghast. No one could believe it. Me of all people, the boring old maid. The finance director came out of his office. He was the one who forced Georgia on us. I went ballistic on him too. I shoved Ling out of the way and called him a a fat useless shower of shit. I blamed him for all the company's financial problems. I scream about the thousands spent on restaurants and hotel rooms where he spent nights fucking his old PA on the company's dime. I reveal at full volume how we had to pay her off so he wouldn't be taken to court for harassment. Then I go off on how lazy he is, how he starts later than everyone else in the office and never really understands the numbers until someone explains them to him like a toddler. I tell him he's so obese and so ugly that he turned his wife to stone. Then I spat in his face and I stormed out of the building. In a way, it makes me kind of laugh now. Who doesn't dream of telling their boss or some other idiot what you really think of them? I blew everything up in one crazy moment. And it felt good. It was an exciting, crazy ride. But only for a moment. As I stormed back to my car, the horror started to creep up on me. Anger dominated all my emotions until I was about halfway home. Then, panic took over. I had to pull my car into the hard shoulder. I put my fist in my mouth and started to howl. I banged my head against the steering wheel. It was like mourning someone's death when you get that sudden, uncontrollable outpouring of emotion. I had just destroyed my life. It was a long time before I could try to get my head together. What? could I do to make this right? I thought about it frantically. What excuses and reasons could I give for what just happened? For all the ideas going through my mind, the best one I had was to have myself committed. Admit I'd gone crazy because, clearly, 
I'd gone out of my mind. I was seeing things and having these messed up dreams. Maybe I was schizophrenic. The dreams, the feeling of being watched, these could be warning signs, the manifestation of all that was going wrong in my head. The scary kid, the tattoo, they were symbols of my disintegration, messages from my subconscious. I had to drive very slowly. My mind was racing through the last few months. What were the other signs? The accident, for sure. That must have been the first real symptom. I short-circuited the first warning sign because of all the pressures of work and home. I could make these pieces fit together. I could make this justification work and they'd have to listen because mental health in the workplace is such an issue today. Maybe I could at least get a respectable reference from them. I wasn't paying attention, of course, to evidence that didn't fit, just like how many other people had seen the graffiti, or how Billy had seen the boy the first day I saw him watching me. There were already missed calls from the office on my phone. I ignored them. When I got home, I started to research how to commit myself, where I had to go, what I had to do, what it would mean and whether to get Claire to drive me or to take a cab. I couldn't drive again. I was too dangerous. If someone cut me off and tried to overtake, I might go ballistic. The accident could be so much worse this time. What was I going to tell Claire? She was going to love this. The chance to watch me fuck up and fall down for a change. She was going to be delighted. She could stay at my home for as long as she wanted now. I was off to the Shit Creek Motel for a long stay in a padded suite. I could hear that laughter, that horrible, cruel laughter again. I looked around. There was no one outside the window, no one in the house. I couldn't hear where it was coming from. I started to scream for it to stop. I heard keys in the door. I sprung off the sofa about to yell, Who's there? But I heard the sound of Liam and Claire squabbling. I thought I was going to pass out. This was too much. Liam ran down the hall, insisting he was first to use the toilet. Claire breezed into the living room, saying hello without looking at me, reaching to a plug socket to charge her phone. I didn't say anything. I didn't know how I was going to tell her. I didn't even know how I'd behave saying it. If my emotions got extreme, I might end up in a wreck, screaming and pounding my fists into the wall. Claire shouted upstairs to tell Liam to get out of the bathroom. I took deep breaths, hoping I could calm myself down. I saw Claire's phone light up with a notification. I walked over and took a look at it. The message said, Ordered the t-shirts, 15 each. Send it us when you've got a sec. Yours is medium, right? I knew her passcode and swiped into her phone. A Facebook page appeared. It was an invite page for a Hindu in Prague. One of her friends was getting married. The phone fell from my hands. So that was what all the money she was saving was for. She was planning a holiday with friends. A great big party. I became a passenger in my own body. I thundered into the kitchen in a smooth fury. She was there with Liam, about to make a peanut butter sandwich. 
She asked if I was feeling better. I punched her in the face. She fell against the counter. Before she could speak, I'd grabbed her by the collar. I started shaking her. Her weight was nothing. I could have thrown her like a bag of laundry. You fucking lying bitch. Got money for holidays? You can afford to swan fucking off while I look after all your shit? Take responsibility for you? Make sure you've a roof over your head? I threw her against the fridge, you selfish twat. She collapsed to the floor. She'd been too shocked to say a word. Now she started to scream. Shut the fuck up! I bent down, yelling, spitting in her face. Shut the fuck up, you miserable cunt, or I'll kill you. I will fucking kill you. And I meant it. If I'd seen a knife, I might have picked it up and stabbed her to death. I could have done it, and I might have, if Liam hadn't jumped on my back, punching and kicking at me, and shouting for me to leave her alone. I swatted him off. He landed on the floor, and I spun around, ready to kick him across the kitchen. I could have sent him through the wall. But my mind kicked back in. Nothing in the world can make me harm Liam. I froze and then backed into a corner. Now I started to scream. I fell to my knees, clutching the sides of my head. I screamed hysterically. They both stared at me, too frightened to say or do anything. I got up and I ran. I ran out the house and pelted it down the road. I didn't know where I was going. I could hear that laughter again coming from nowhere, rattling around in my head. I ran for more than a mile. I stopped on a bench by a bus stop for a long cry. People avoided me, and I got worried I'd be recognised. If only I knew somewhere to hide. I started to wander into town. It was a few miles walk, but I had nowhere else to go, and I didn't want to think too hard about where I would end up. The crippling despair was turning into waves of sorrow. I was grieving for my life, which I'd just set on fire and was going up in smoke. I'd almost beaten a child. I decided to go where no one would bother me or notice me, the local Weatherspoons. The bar staff were quick enough not to set me off. I sat in a corner staring at the bubbles in my cider. That was what it really felt like under my skin. Energy bubbling up, ready to pop, ready to burst, ready to explode. How many years does it take to build a life, to build a career? It doesn't happen overnight, but it can all be lost in a moment. Work would never let me back in the building again. There was no excuse for my conduct. My sister could be at the police station right now, telling the cops I assaulted her, harmed her little boy. I was reaching a state of numbness. I could feel the energy still breathing under the surface, but it was contained. The enormity of everything was too much to process. What had I done? Who was I now? What was the cure? Controlled, uptight me of all people. I was capable of harm, of flying off the handle. Me, who was so controlled and balanced. Life's designated driver. It was really hard to think straight. 
But what was weird among so many other things was that no matter how much I thought I should be sorry, I wasn't. Not really. I was I was in mourning for the destruction of my life. I didn't really care so much about what exactly I'd done. Except for hurting Liam, but I'd stopped myself from doing that. On some level, I'd meant everything else. Of course I did. Georgia was an idiot. Oh, Our finance director was a slimy piece of shit. Claire is a selfish twat some most of the time. It felt like an alien to myself. What I'd done was not okay. I never thought I was capable of this kind of hate or violence. I couldn't even believe this version of me could ever exist. Christ, I was a basket case. I couldn't control myself. I returned to my original idea of getting committed. I could call the madhouse, tell them to expect me, and book a cab there, or maybe get dropped off nearby. I didn't want the taxi driver to be scared of taking me. I was in no rush. I stared at the bubbles some more. Then I saw him watching me from a row of booths. The kid with bright white eyes. He stared and his mouth opened wide in a big, knowing grin. He looked so pleased. My instinct was to run to him, scream and demand why. Why are you doing this to me? But as I stood, I heard a racket from the other end of the bar. People shouting and yelling. Someone kicking up a fuss. That someone was pushing their way to the front of the bar. People tried to stop her. She was shoving and pushing them away aggressively, swearing and yelling back at them. The voice was familiar. You can all fuck off. I'm having my pint. Get me a Foster's. Piss off. It was Billy. Two bouncers in reflective jackets were trying to take hold of her. She wasn't having any of it. She slipped from their grip and pushed them back. I saw two policemen arrive. The bouncers got more aggressive, forcing her up against the bar and trying to lock their arms around her. She responded by punching one in the head, catching him hard against the ear. The other yanked her away, putting her blows out of range. With her stumbling, the bruised bouncer reached down and grabbed her leg. With the help of the two policemen, they took a limb each. They lifted her up off the ground. She screamed and struggled as they carried her out into the street. The punters loved it. There was applause and wolf whistles and laughter. I thought for a moment to help her, but I thought better of it. I wouldn't have been able to take them. At least I didn't think so. I wasn't sure what I was capable of now. But this changed everything. It wasn't just me. It had her too. And of course it did. We were both scrubbing the graffiti away. This thing had taken us both. I felt relief. I wasn't crazy. At least I wasn't crazy alone. This was something else. Like an infection. She must have the tattoo too. I looked back to the kid but he was gone. I heard the click of a door closing. A fire exit snapped shut just a few tables away. I went after him. The fire exit led into a wide alley. Right on the brick wall in front of me was an enormous smudge tag. The biggest I'd seen yet. I stared at the graffiti for a little time. This wasn't chance. There was a message or a clue here. God knows what or why. 
This kid wanted something out of me. He needed me to do something. This was timed. I was supposed to see him, hear him leave, and run into this big sign. Did he want me to follow him? What if all these tags were a trail? I'd already seen them all over town. What if I followed them? Where would it take me? I still didn't know what it meant. But I wasn't going to play the game of calling this madness or schizophrenia anymore. Something was doing this to me, to both of us. And I needed to find out why. And how to stop it. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like to support what I do, please consider leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. You can also become a patron and enjoy some bonus content by signing up at patreon.com slash newghoststories. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. If you'd like to find out more about New Ghost Stories, visit my website, newghoststories.substack.com. And to get all the latest from me, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon, at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, a terrifying crime inspires a shocking act of revenge. Revenge.